Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to another episode of Kitchen Club with me, Sarah Malcolm, and my wonderful friend, Serena Lau. Kitchen Club is the weekly podcast that brings you conversations from our kitchen table. Each week brings a new guest, a new area of expertise to get stuck into, and a brand new recipe created using our guests' three favorite ingredients that they've got in their kitchen right now. We also ask our guests to share their healthy habit which is something that they do daily to enhance their well-being. We like to try that out ahead of recording and then tell you how we all got on. This week, we are chatting to Zoe Aston. Zoe is one of London's freshest psychotherapists and mental health consultants and creator of Your Mental Health Workout. She has worked in therapy settings for nine years and specializes in addiction, eating disorders, and trauma. She applies a warm and compassionate approach to helping people overcome self-defeating thoughts and shame-based beliefs so that they live happier, healthier lives. We spoke to Zoe about the importance of feeling our feelings, the cathartic effects of crying, and how we can support the mental health of both ourselves and those around us. Zoe's three favourite ingredients that are in her kitchen at the moment were courgette, carrot and chickpeas. So keep listening to hear what we made for her. So here is the wonderful Zoe Aston on Kitchen Club. Hi Zoe, welcome to Kitchen Club. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. And it's sad not to be meeting you in person, but as we were just saying, at least we're able to record like this online. Absolutely. Yes, it's so nice to have you Zoe. And we've got so many things we want to talk to you about. We've both been really excited to have you. So it's really nice to to see you and and share your wisdom. Um, we're going to dive firstly into your three favorite ingredients so we would have made you something in person like we normally do and have a nice have a nice meal together and nice chat um but obviously times are different so could you please tell us your three favorite ingredients that are in that in your kitchen right now yeah courgette chickpeas and a lemon 
Is that what I had? No. Carrots. <laughs> and carrots. I love yeah. carrots. Yeah. I used to be a cucumber person, but I've recently transferred over to carrots. <laughs> Is it a one or the other, carrot or cucumber? Uh, well, I mean, you can have them together, but it just, I prefer, I go through phases where I prefer carrots to cucumbers, whereas I used to always prefer cucumbers. <laughs> They're the two prime hummus dippers. They yeah, are, exactly. aren't they? Hummus being the main uh, thing that I ingest on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> Serena, would you like to tell us what recipe you've made for Zoe? I did. I will. I did. <laughs> I will. So I made chickpea and carrot fritters with courgette and cumin seeds and then a courgette dip, which I am really excited about because talking of hummus, I make so much hummus and I'm actually, I'm not bored of it, but I make too much of it. And so to discover a new dip is beyond exciting. And it's, so it's kind of like a Bubba Ganoush. We've been calling it Bubba Jet at home. Bubba Jet. It was either Bubba Jet or Courgenoush, I think. Um, <laughs> but it's like all the ingredients of a Bubba Ganoush, tahini, lemon, um, what herb did I use? Coriander, garlic, and you roast the courgette first and then blend it all up. And it's, it I'm obsessed. Delicious. I actually just had it for lunch just now with some bubble and squeak and some rocket. Very nice. So Serena sent me a picture of, of what she'd made you and she was like, I'm just so into this dip. I just, <laughs> I just absolutely love it. <laughs> so hopefully you'll be able to make it and yeah. um, enjoy it too. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry we couldn't make it for you. I know, it's so sad, but... I I do really enjoy I'm not a very good chef or um, baker, but I really enjoy it. I get lots of things wrong and lots of things that I make are, no, not lots of things. I'd say about a third of things I make are pretty disgusting, but um, (laughs) I really liked the look of this one. So I'll give it, I'm going to give it a good shot, uh, maybe tomorrow night, I think, or on the weekend. Good. You have to make mistakes though in cooking. That's that's part of learning how to, how to make things work. And if you've got nice ingredients, it can never go that wrong. It's always going to taste pretty nice. Really? You say that. <laughs> you say that. So, Zoe, you are a psychotherapist, mental health consultant working um, in London, specialising in addiction, eating disorders and trauma. And yeah. so we would love if you could start off by telling us how you got into that line of work and whether it was something that you grew up knowing that you wanted to do or if it's something that you came to later in life. So I grew up as a performer. I grew up dancing and singing and acting, but dancing was my thing. So um, I was very much, I went to a stage school, I was very much in the performing arts, um, uh, right up until my 20s, actually. Um, and then I, through my own mental health issues and through my own eating disorder and the, the, the different things that happened to me, I kind of felt that what I was doing didn't really sit so well with me trying to be um, trying to get better basically. And I was a bit like, well, what am I going to do? Cause this is all I've ever done. All I've ever done is, you know, danced or taught dancing or performed. Um, and I just on, on the spot basically decided that I really enjoyed therapy and talking to people and being in groups with people and that I was going to go and apply to do psychology. Um, I'm a, I'm one of these people where I'll just like be like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. And then I just go and do it. I don't think too much about things, which is a great way to be. But also I've learned as I've got older to trust my hesitation a little bit more. But I, when I was younger, it, it meant that I made some really, really good decisions that, um, could have been 
overthought, basically. Mm. So I went home and I applied for this uh, for psychology, this master's in psychology, um, in addiction psychology specifically. Um, they were kind of like, well, you don't have an undergraduate degree, so can you go away and do a year of psychology somewhere else and then come back? And I did, and I went, and I did it, and I kind of landed on my feet because I ended up in a job. One of my placements turned into my job on Harley Street, and then I was there for eight years, really. I left there last year when I decided to sort of peter out and do my own thing a little bit more. Um, you may may not know that I now specialise uh, my consultancy work specializes with fitness gyms and uh, working with brands, fitness brands to bring mental health into their arena. Because for a long time, we've all known that mental and physical go alongside each other, but there's never really been an easy way that people have found to integrate them. So yeah. I got really interested in that. And that was sort of my, my calling, I guess, in terms of what my real sort of where my real cre creativity around therapy and around psychology was um so I still specialize with uh, addictions and eating disorders and I do lots of trauma work in my private practice but I also work extensively with gyms in London and brands um and the two main ones get... are Barry's and Robots right yeah so yeah. the top ones are Barry's and Robots and Lululemon at the moment oh amazing fitness wise yeah so all different they all need me for different things uh but it's really fascinating and really inspiring to see brands that have been around or things that have been around for a really long time wanting to bring mental health or you know therapy basically into people's everyday lives yeah. um and I suppose one of the main inspirations for me was that through because I got into doing this quite young I was surrounded by people my age who didn't have information that I had for some reason because I was studying psychology it seemed like I was like privileged to information that I thought everyone should know. So I'll say things to friends or I'll talk about something recovery based and they'll be like, Oh my God, why has no one ever said that to me? And I'm like, mm. everyone should be able to have this information. And therapy is really expensive and not everyone has the privilege of being able to do that, but I think everyone should have the opportunity. Hence my sort of attempt to take what happens in a therapeutic environment into environments like gyms and businesses and teams uh, where people can have access to it without it being a sort of shameful stigmatized process yeah amazing and in in this vein Zoe you have created your mental health workout can you yeah. tell us a little more about that and how that came about and what what that means so I, I started up this Instagram account last year again on a whim I was like, oh, I'm going to start. I was talking <laughs> to my dad about like how I could uh, be a little bit more visible in what I was doing because so much everything that I did was confidential. It was between sort of the four, me and the client and the four, wall, the four walls. Yeah. Um, and it so happened that my younger sister said to me, oh, IGTV is the new YouTube. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just start an IGTV channel. And my, dad, my dad's worked in TV for his whole life. So he was like, just film yourself talking and see if you like it. And I was like, okay. So I just sort of, off I went kind of thing and um, people responded to it really well and I think the mixture of my kind of knowledge around the sort of deeper emotional processes and psychological processes and the solution-based tips and resources and tools um, worked for lots of people it was really easy for them to take in and digest and the followers the account was originally called something else I just titled it Life Therapy London which was my private practice name the followers started talking about it being like a workout or being like a gym and I thought actually that's exactly what I've got in my mind so this idea of a mental health workout came out of the response that I got 
Um, and right. the setup for the Instagram account is very much that the followers tell me what they want to hear about and they answer questions and what they share contributes to the content most of the time to the content that is used on the account so I think um, that's how it's sort of evolved and in a way that has been really well received because it's been so led by the followers it's basically been follower led Mm. I think if someone will say something and I'm like oh that's a really good idea yeah which is how it should be really isn't it because otherwise you're just putting stuff out and you don't really know if it's serving people online yeah um and it builds well, it, more of yeah. a community for, your own, for what you're yeah, looking and, about and it also yeah it also tells me what's going on in general sort of what's in the zeitgeist what what's what's in demand you know sometimes people want to hear about i don't know like at the moment it's loneliness um people want to hear about loneliness yeah. which totally makes sense um people are a bit head up fed up of hearing about social isolation and corona but actually the sort of byproduct of what's going on here I think we sort of intuitively instinctively know that loneliness and connection are going to be the things that are affected going forward so it's always a really interesting a really interesting platform to have to put out these questions and I mean I feel you know so sometimes I sort of feel amazed at people's bravery with the stuff that they share and sometimes heartbroken at the same time but it's absolutely astonishing that people need that space to be able to answer things anonymously and say you know connect with someone or just know that someone else somewhere has read that they feel xyz um i think it's a really it's become a really sort of special place having been obviously really stigmatized in the past mental health is something that's getting talked about more and more obviously and it's amazing that people are more willing to be vulnerable and to share their stories in order to help other people. I was wondering how much the conversation around mental health has changed since you've been in the industry and what it's been like to watch that evolution. I think the main effect that I've had is using the the workout metaphor, the fitness metaphors. Um, Because I didn't say it in the last bit, but your mental health workout is also a program that people can follow of really basic stuff that most of us do anyway. We just don't do it in like a structured, um, conscious way. Um, So I think offering people ideas around mental health and emotional well-being in a form that they already understand um, with metaphors that they can already, that everyone can relate to, that they already understand, because we have a physical body and we all can see our body. That's why it's much easier to attend to physical health because we can see it. We don't necessarily stay on track with our mental well-being because we can't see it we can't really see the changes as much as we can see it in our in our physical body so using that kind of metaphor and the movement of metaphor and per, movement of metaphor the, the, <laughs> and the metaphor of movement and change um, means that people can apply what they already know about their body and their fitness and their uh, self-care in that department to their mental health some of it's so basic and sometimes I go into places and I talk about it and they're like oh is that it I'm like yeah that's it and then you have to be consistent with it Um, and that's where people find find it difficult so part of my mo is to make sure that people understand what to expect because if you go to the gym and you work out and you haven't worked out for a while you're going to be sore and you're probably going to be tired and it's going to be a bit uncomfortable Um, but the more you do it the easier it gets the better you feel mental health is exactly the same you're going to have strong feelings you're not going to like it It's not going to make you feel better straight away, but ultimately it's going to make you happier and healthier in the long run. And people forget that bit, the sort of the mental health, um, the mental health and the self-care movement 
sort of imply that if you do this and this, if you do mindfulness, if you do affirmations, if you meditate, you're going to be really happy. And actually, the first thing that they do is bring up loads of difficult feelings, which is why people consciously or unconsciously go, actually, I don't want to do that. I'm really not not interested. It's not for me. So part of my spiel is making sure that people understand that this is going to be difficult and you can expect to feel angry and feel a bit disjointed. And ultimately, what these things do is change your self-concept and your limiting beliefs. And that is horrendously uncomfortable. If you've lived by a set of beliefs about yourself for 20, 30, 40 years, when you start doing something different and it challenges those beliefs about yourself, you're in a place that we call cognitive dissonance, which basically as human beings, we do anything that we can to not be in. We try, we fill the gap with food or drink or shopping, or we do other anxious behaviors to make sure that, that we are not sitting in that space where change happens. So allowing people the space to understand that when it gets difficult, that's when you get better. That's when you get fitter. That's when you get happier. I think and just made it a bit more accessible and easier for brands like Barry's, like robots, like Lululemon to understand how to bring it into their already, their already set business model. Yeah. Obviously what we're all moving through at the moment is particularly hard (laughs) somewhere we've never been before. And it's more important now than ever to sort of support each other in this time and reach out to friends and family just in terms of mental health and sort of what our listeners can can really gain from this, what what are the sort of things to look out for with people who are struggling and maybe not actually talking about it? Um, and how can we sort of identify those behaviours if someone in our life is moving through something that, that they're not sort of fully expressing? It's a really interesting question because I will always bring that back to you you can only identify and help other people if you know what's going on for you so in the first instance I encourage everybody to be really curious and really introspective about their own feelings and their own thoughts I talk about feelings thoughts and behaviors being kind of what makes up the mental health muscle and the mental health workout you've got everyone's got it whether you use it and how you use it is completely up to you in terms of supporting other people I always give the same piece of advice. And that is, again, you can only talk about your own feelings. So if you are concerned about someone, you can say, I've been a bit worried about you. Um, I need to know that you're okay. Rather than what I think we default to, which is trying to immediately fix the other person and say, you seem like you're sad, lonely, isolating, depressed. What do you need? As soon as you say that, the person responds as if you kind of put something on them and there'll be an argument they get angry and they get defensive whereas if you go towards someone yeah if you go towards someone and say look I've been thinking about you and I'm 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 a bit worried are you all right I need to know that you're okay um how they respond is how they respond but at least you've identified your truth and your reality and you've represented yourself accurately rather than going in as a sort of rescue mission and then feeling hurt when the person lashes out because they're not in a place to receive it so in terms of supporting other people ultimately and connecting with other people ultimately it is about kind of first connecting with ourselves um particularly at the moment when we have been like we are now on our screens and less sort of physically interactive with each other we've got a lot less co- what we call co-regulation and a lot less um emotional validation 
from the people that we'd normally get validation and gratification from. Society is normally set up that we don't have to work very hard to see other human beings. We just see them all the time. Mm-hmm. It just happens. Um, and we normally take that for granted and we normally find it quite annoying and there's normally too many people around. And uh, depending on whether you're introverted or extroverted, you'll have a particular set of reactions to that. But at the moment, we are exercising mental health muscles that we're not really used to being in touch with because we are having to make efforts to connect with people and we're having to make efforts to socialize and we're having to make sure that we are looking after ourselves in different ways. So people are very tired Um People are finding that now I think people are a bit fed up and they're finding that they are moving into further isolation within isolation. So up until now, everyone's been a bit proactive around speaking to friends and family and keeping in touch with I think the fatigue around that change and the fatigue around having to put the effort in and the sort of moral dilemmas that come up around going to the shops, you know, such simple things. But we have mm-hmm. to think is it actually appropriate for me to go to the shops? Do I really need flour right now, <laughs> for example? Um, everything becomes a moral a moral issue. Do I really need to get out of the house? Uh, I've, I, I digress. But anyway, the point being that we normally, uh, normally we are able to connect with people uh, quite easily. And at the moment, I think people are starting to get fatigued and a bit depressed about it. So, you know, if you notice that a friend's contact has changed, if you notice that someone who's always texting you has stopped, or you notice that someone who was calling you every other day has stopped, then, you know, by all means, check in, but they're probably fine. They're probably just um, settling into this particular way of being. Lots of us have found out things about ourselves that we would not have found out had this not happened because we haven't got all the normal things to distract us. And that, I think, is a kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in terms Mm -hmm. of your own mental health and your own psychology. And figuring out how you want to take things forward, um, I think, is one of the sort of, I hate the term silver linings, but it's one of the good things that might come out of this. Yeah, Uh, We don't, we can't, if anything, if we've learned anything, it's that we can't really plan for practical things. You know, most people's 2020s, anything they had planned for 2020 is just gone but we can plan how to look after ourselves emotionally so to cycle back around to your original question um the answer is always to check in with yourself and know yourself and do the work on yourself because from that place you can then go in and offer something to someone else and if they don't take it you're in a good enough space to continue to feel good about yourself regardless of whether the other person is available to receive or not I love that. I'm getting a bit obsessed with trying to find positive things to come out of the current situation. So I love things like that when you're like, oh, and now I can see it as an opportunity to learn about myself, to add to my list of I'm now very good at baking bread and running. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think there are a few, though. I think this will also change the way that uh, I think this will change the way that we socialize. I think it will change our boundaries. I think it will make people very aware of boundaries. You know, normally... Well, in the old pre-corona times, um, if you move away from someone, they're often offended, you know, and they're likely to say, oh, you're scared of me or do I smell or make some kind of remark. Now, if you move away from someone, um, it seems like the appropriate thing to do. So I think it's fundamentally going to change how much permission we give each other and ourselves to have boundaries, to have personal space, to do things like work from home if you're not having a great day. You know, so many people have found that difficult up until now when they've realized that actually working from home makes them far more productive and lots of things can happen from home. 
Um, so I think there are lots of things that will change and lots of things that will benefit us in the long run. Of course, it's never, we're not going to go back to normal. It's going to be a new way of being, but it will, I think there are, if we can get a hold of it, there are a handful of beneficial mental health, psychological, um, changes that might just filter their way into society. Yeah. A nice, fresh way to look at it all. I think when there's so much negativity flying around, Mm. When it comes to our emotions, I know that a lot of us have a tendency to kind of repress and to push things down. What is it that's important about us being able to open up and talk about and share our feelings? So feelings in my metaphor, in my way of working, are your mental health muscle, like I said earlier. And it's only when that muscle knows what it's doing that we know what we're doing. So, you know, if you think about any other muscle, if any other muscle is weak or fatigued or hasn't been worked for a while it doesn't know how to function and we have to like reteach it how to function and feelings are kind of just like that the better we get to know them the more we use them the more we can tolerate them the more resilient we are around them the better decisions we make in life in general so it's a bit like you know if you're say use a really obvious example say your quads have never been used before you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to walk you're not going to be able to run you have to build them up from a very sort of low space you have to do it gently gently carefully carefully and people tend to go in to feelings with extremes all or nothing or black or white you know um i can't be sad because i'll never stop being sad or if i get angry i'm gonna hurt someone or hurt myself i'm never gonna stop being angry or i'm always excited and things are always happy and i'm always grateful and we seem to think that there's a sort of um need to be in the intense version of the emotion when actually sometimes it just needs to be explored and uh learnt about in a really sensitive and intimate and personal way and that's how you then formulate your thoughts and that's how you then formulate your actions so we can get very stuck on thoughts which in my metaphor are like the apparatus that you use to work out your mental health muscle so if I say I feel angry Um, My anger informs my thinking that something's not okay and I need to change something or I need to say something or I need to do something. What I do with that is the tool, the apparatus, the the sort of mechanism that I use to make sure that my mental health muscle, my anger is attended to. um, And then the behavior comes out of that. So I'm forever in groups and in one-to-one, but forever in group therapy or in group settings, trying to get people back to their feelings and into their bodies and to understand what it feels like to actually feel, not to think. I'll say to someone, how do you feel? And they'll be like, "Mm, I think. And I'm like, no, that's (laughs) your thinking. Feelings Mm -hmm. don't start with I think. Because thinking, we tell ourselves a story, we feel better about it, we justify things, but your mental health muscle, your feelings, ultimately still get neglected and ignored and they don't become the thing that drives your decision and drives your your um, quality of life. Hmm. And I do believe that when we're in touch with our body and we're in touch with our feelings and we can respond appropriately to them, um, we live much happier, healthier lives. Because not And, and not all feelings are nice, but that doesn't mean yeah. that you don't go there. Not all exercises are nice. You know, I'm sure when, Serena, when you started running, there were parts that weren't very nice. All of it. Every single part. (laughs) (laughs) But you carried on doing it. You're now really good at it. So, well, um, feeling... (laughs) Enjoying (laughs) it. So exactly the same. Good. (laughs) Enjoying it. Exactly. And I mean, that's a good example. Sometimes, you know, anger is not a nice feeling to be in, for example. Sadness is not a nice feeling to be in. Heartbreak is not a nice feeling to be in. Um, But it can feel cathartic at the same time. Once you have 
the capacity to kind of trust that it will pass and feelings do pass feelings you can't stay you physiologically can't stay in a state of hyper arousal for more than about 20 minutes so feelings always pass they don't stick around for as long as we think they're going to stick around um, but I won't go into it now, but because of the particular place in the brain that feelings tend to come from, um, that particular part of the brain doesn't know, it can't tell time. So you think that this is going to go on forever, you're always going to feel this way. The likelihood is it's going to go up and down and up and down and up and down. Mm. Uh, I think that's just a, that's also a really helpful piece of information to have because for people who yeah. are too repressed or depressed their feelings, just knowing that actually it's physiologically impossible for you to be in a state of heightened emotion for more than about 20 minutes, half an hour. Wow. Everyone should know that fact. You need like a little reminder (laughs) that no matter how absolutely terrible you feel right now, in two hours time, you're going to be okay. Mm. Yeah. This too shall pass. Oh yes. People always, yeah, that old, that old, that old chestnut. People often ask me about panic attacks or anxiety attacks and how to cope with them or what to do if someone has a panic attack or anxiety attack. And I usually just say, just, you just need to be with them half an hour while it passes being with someone just co-regulates them you don't have to say anything there's nothing you can do that is wrong or right but just being with that person so they have someone to make eye contact with once it passes makes a whole lot of difference um and just knowing you know being with someone who's very upset like that or highly anxious is quite an unnerving situation to be in but just knowing that actually if i let's give it 30 minutes and then we'll see how we're doing That's actually a very useful nugget as well for people, I think, because with so many people suffering from anxiety these days, Mm. you know, like in the future, we're probably all going to find ourselves in that situation where we need to be with someone who's having a a bit of an anxious episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm not talking just to sort of uh, caveat that. I'm talking about sort of general mental wellness. I'm not talking about any sort of diagnosable yeah. um, crossing the line into sort of diagnosable psychotic of course. Um, or schizophrenia or bipolar or anything like that. I'm talking about sort of day-to-day mental health hygiene because yeah. um, of course there is a point where it crosses over and the person is in that altered state all the time, um, which is a different situation completely. Yeah. Um, Zoe, you also talk about crying, the act of crying yeah. um, a lot on your Instagram, which I really love. You shared your thoughts on crying, which I thought was really beautiful. Could you just share them with us now and what you sort of took from crying as a process in the body? Yeah. So I used to cry all the time, like all the time. I was a big crier um, and the type of crying that is kind of inconsolable and no one really knows what to do about crying. Um, On my own, in public, they just, the tears just came. <laughs> so, um, and one week I had a client who said to me, why, why, when we get upset, does water come out of our eyes? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know why that happens, but we accept it as a sort of emotional reaction to things. So anyway, I went away and looked it up and ultimately crying is just an, it's an excretion process. So when your body becomes overwhelmed with cortisol, um, and various other chemicals, of which I can't remember right at this point in time, um, you become overwhelmed, you become upset, and tears, we believe, tears contain some of the overflow of those chemicals. So we've developed it as, A, a way to release our overwhelm and to help ourselves feel better, which is why you feel better after a good cry, because your body has released a whole load of, usually cortisol, which is a stress hormone, um, and brings your mind and your body back to balance usually um 
but also we've developed so we developed a sort of stress release sort of excretion process um and it's a signal to other human beings that we're not okay it's a non-verbal form of communication and actually about 70 percent of our communication is non-verbal not a lot of it is words with our bodies and our 70%. facial expressions yeah and our sort of grunts and our huffs and our puffs and the way that we're breathing you know all that kind of stuff is actually non-verbal communication and crying is part of that so we are the only species who have developed a particular non-verbal cue that lets other members of our species know that we need help so you know if you ever see someone crying on the tube that tug on your heart which is like oh, I just want to go give them a hug mm. or I just want to like I've been that person I've been there I want to go and see what's wrong I want to help them we are primed to um help someone who is crying who is upset we know that they're hurt whether it's their heart or their body or their mind we know that they're hurt whereas other species they do have tears but they are usually just to clean the eye so you won't right. find like your cat crying or your puppy crying or you know, anything <laughs> <Imagine>. like that <laughs> um, because they have other they have other ways of communicating tales tales and other pieces <laughs> which you come to understand but uh, yeah the point being that human beings are the only species that cry emotional tears um, right. which I just think is really fascinating um, yeah. it's also I think got something to do with when we're babies um it triggers particular chemicals in our in our parents in our primary caregivers um to look after us um, and you'll hear mums say, oh, is that, a, is that a feed me cry? Is that a change me cry? Is that a cuddle me cry? Mm. They're very specific types of cries that um, people become very, very attuned to if you're around someone for a long time. Wow. So it's a really I, good bit of emotional communication, basically. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I was really thinking about it. Um, was it last night? Whatever night we finish normal people. And... Um, <laughs> And the fact that I, when people, whenever I cry in a film, I'm, I'm a crier. Whenever I cry in a film or watching something, I hate when people, I actually really dislike when people say like, oh, are you okay? Why are you crying? Because I love crying and stuff like that. Like it feels really <laughs> yeah. good to just cry. And it feels yeah. like a really nice emotional release, similar to laughing. It's like that same sort of feeling yeah. in the body, yeah, isn't yeah. it? It's just like, get it out and be like, yeah. oh, thank goodness um and I also noticed when I when I was crying what it did to my breath which is probably a whole other topic but I just thought it would be interesting just to share that yeah. it has a sort of really control your breath when you're yeah. crying or laughing don't you that's yeah <laughs> and and that's one of the purposes it, it allows you to gain control control over your breath because if you didn't cry and your breath did the same thing you'd you'd hyperventilate basically so there's something yeah. about crying which allows you to regulate your breathing and your breathing is your number one tool for emotional regulation um but the thing about crying at films is also interesting because we are often really le much less defended around films or adverts or animals than we are around our own set of emotions and our own relationships so you know something can be happening in my life I'm relatively robust you know I do I handle stuff pretty well um and then I watch a film happened to me recently i'll watch a film and i'll just be in absolute bits partly because you're not expecting it to trigger you like that or activate you like yeah. that but also because you're in a less defended place you're not kind of hyping yourself up and thinking right what am i going to do about this and finding ways of understanding the situation so adverts and films um that catch us out like that are actually really helpful because they allow us to release those emotions that we might not let ourselves feel going back to your previous point, Serena, around repression of feelings, um, might not let ourselves feel in a day-to-day -day environment. 
I'm literally loving everything that you're saying. I'm such a big crier, so I'm finding this so fascinating. I'm I'm like Sarah, anything on the TV, anything I see, if I like see someone on the street that looks upset, I'm crying. My boyfriend's like, what's wrong with you? But as Sarah said, it feels so good afterwards. I love it. Yeah. Don't even yeah. get me started suppose- on normal people. <laughs> so slightly different from from my question about repressing feelings, how about... I feel like we all know one of those people who is not particularly in tune with their emotions and and they just kind of they're just kind of like fine, always fine. How can somebody who who doesn't really feel their emotions start to tap into that a bit more and become a bit more sensitive to their internal world? I think the thing to remember is that some people are never in touch with their emotions and they are fine and they live their life and they're totally okay with that. That can be incredibly frustrating for people who experience high levels of empathy or are very in tune with the sort of vibrancy of an emotional landscape. Um, and I think just developing for the person on the receiving end of someone who isn't really sort of emotionally attuned, accepting that that might be how that person wants to be and how they're comfortable living their life needs to be kind of brought into the picture a little bit. The problems occur when the person who is fine, in inverted commas, um, is clearly not fine, uh, is clearly struggling. And that will start to show up in their behavior. So someone who is, say, always fine but has a drug problem, it's going to show up because it's going to show up in the drug problem. And you'll be able to point out when you say you're fine, but you're clearly using drugs to help you manage your things at the moment. So what that tells me is that actually you're not fine. And the reason that you think you're fine is because you're using the drugs to feel okay. And that's a problem because you've lost your job or you, um, you know, your health is suffering or your friends are starting to not want to be around you. So there will be behavioral consequences that you can kind of show to the person. That's a sort of very extreme example on a smaller on a smaller on a smaller sort of closer to home level there will be things that people do that indicate that they are not fine like i say only 30 25 30% of communication is verbal so the fine means nothing if the person is um unable to talk or you know sitting in their room all day or um bursting into fits of rage or tears or having bouts of anxiety or depression um and that again that will that will eventually come to the surface that will show up people demonstrate much more about themselves with their behavior than they do with their words um i say this particularly when i'm working with with couples you know words are words we all most of us have a very um expansive vocabulary we can say and justify and make sense of the things that probably don't even make any sense and we can talk ourselves in and out of all sorts of things but ultimately when you watch each other's behavior what happens and that's usually where kind of truth starts to come out that's where truth kicks in um it can be incredibly frustrating to be on the receiving end of someone who's not particularly emotionally attuned and we as humans we have a tendency to think that other people think the same as us um and we kind of will be like well why are you not reacting like that or why are you not saying that or doing that um and the fact is that the other person has just got a different way of coping with it and it's taken me a long time to get to grips with the fact that some people are fine not being in touch with their feelings. You know, I've got family members and friends and 
people very close to me in my life that I'm just like, I just got to not bother with that because yeah. actually your, your life is fine. You, you work, you have friends, you know, your life actually, you, you, you operate your life well. Yeah. So why, why should I go in there and be like, well, aren't you sad about that? Or don't you feel happy about that? And start in, introducing feelings when actually they're coping. Okay. And for some people, we just don't take away that coping mechanism, quite frankly, um, unless they want to. And I think with feelings, with mental health, same as with physical health, well, with going to the gym and stuff, physical fitness, I think ultimately the person has to say, right, I want to work on this. If so, mm. you know, no one's going to, Serena, you started running because you wanted to start running, not because someone forced you to do it. Feelings are the same. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's going to start working on their feelings until they decide they're going to work on their feelings. Otherwise you just end up resentful and moody about it. Yeah. And not wanting to do it at all. <laughs> Um, so you spoke a little bit, you touched on addiction very, very briefly there. Um, yeah. and obviously that's such a big part of what you do and what you cover and address. And we were sort of wondering how addiction relates to, relates to how we look after ourselves and the sort of difference between addiction to the things that we consider healthy mm-hmm. and the addiction to things we consider unhealthy, like drugs, alcohol. Um, yeah. Could you chat a little bit about that and sort of break that down for us? Yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, I would argue that the word addiction implies that something is unhealthy. I mean, we use it in a jokey way. Oh, I'm addicted to this or I'm obsessed with this or, you know, I think I've got a hummus addiction, you know, <laughs> I find myself saying quite often. Um, or, but um Addiction is a maladaptive coping mechanism for feelings, ultimately, for dealing with feelings, usually with trauma. Um, So the word addiction is something that someone usually uses to identify that they have a problem. Um, So when someone says that they are addicted to something, I would always question what they mean by that, because it's not about how much the person is doing something, it's why they're doing it. And if the why is that they um, can't process their feelings, they can't deal with life, and they don't feel normal part of or good enough without it then we've got a bit of a problem if someone says I just do it because I like it but you know so say I mean gym classes are a really good example because people do get a bit sort of addicted to gym classes but I always give people the rule that you know if there's someone invites you out that night then you go out instead of going to the gym class and most people are absolutely fine with that Mm. the person who's addicted will have a real problem with that and they'll have a real conflict and they'll have a real um, dilemma because the gym class is how they are functioning. If anything, drugs, alcohol, food, working out, and any of the other things you can get addicted to, which is most things, start to disrupt daily living or your relationships, then you're looking at something that is potentially classified as an addiction. It's classified as something that takes you over the edge and causes detrimental consequences. Uh, For most of us, we're on a spectrum. For most of us, we can get a bit sort of addicted to something in that sort of compulsive obsessive way but we sort of back off once the intensity is worn off about it or we go this isn't great for me I'm going to stop Um, an addict someone who does get addicted is then controlled by the addiction so they can't stop so you know everyone has different threshold levels some people will do a lot before they get to a point where they go actually this isn't this isn't great I'm hurting myself I'm injuring myself I'm not going to do this anymore or I'm going to taper it down Um, And some people just won't be able to stop. And that's where addiction comes in. 
think sometimes we have to be careful about how we use words that are related to mental health because yeah. they do have specific diagnosis and specific meanings. Um, and I think we can use things like addiction, OCD, crazy, um, depressed as like colloquial words to describe mm. a state that we're in rather than something that's actually wrong. Yeah. And how does that translate into um, the time we're living in? Social media is such such a massive thing in, in a lot of our lives. And, um, and how does that quote unquote addiction move us really and what what is it about that that we are so drawn to is it the sort of dopamine hit that we get from people liking our things or can you talk a little bit about our sort of obsessiveness over that over social media um I mean there's a lot of research around it but because we don't have any long-term evidence we don't know exactly what the effect is going to be yet in 50 years Mm. time they'll be able to look back and be like okay this was the outcome of social media coming into society at the moment there are lots of hypotheses hypotheses about the effects of it and what might happen we know that that everyone gets a dopamine hit so most people get a little dopamine hit when they have interaction on social media Um, I think ultimately the main problem for me is that it is something that has started to replace a form of internal validation and internal self-esteem um, so we've become very used to being able to go out and get validation and get gratification from something outside of ourselves, which means that we don't develop. I call I talk about self-esteem as your core stability to your mental health. So we don't develop that core stability and that strength so that when we're alone, we still feel good enough about ourselves. Mm. And I think social media has played a part in that. I think anxiety, anxiety wasn't quite so well discussed we don't actually think that anxiety levels have necessarily risen but i think the fact that um just more people are coming out of the woodwork to talk about it shows us how much of a non-reported issue it has been for a really really long period of time um so the problems were there they're just exasperated by social media i also think social media has allowed us to have really good conversations um about things like anxiety like body image like you know different self-love movement came out of that the me too movement came out of it you know there are lots of really positive things that have come out of it but i do sort of question the the long-term effect it will have on how people feel about themselves because a bit like addiction it's very easy to go and get the drug of choice in this case social media or instagram or whatever you want to put in that place rather than go hang on a second how do I want to look after myself? How do I want to tend to myself? Which never, ever feels as good as you think someone else giving you validation is going to feel. Validating yourself doesn't feel as good as you think the other person validating you is going to feel. Yet usually when the other person validates you, it's not good enough anyway. So it's about the chase, <laughs> which is, again, what addiction is. It's all about yeah. the chase. It's not really about the hit. It's about the chase. Mm. I think there's certainly going to be some kind of long-term studies on the effect of social media on our mental health. So Zoe, your healthy habit is that you said you're currently getting up between 6 and 7 a.m. and either working out or doing something creative first thing because it gives you a really good start to the quarantine days and helps to energize the rest of your day. I love quoting people back to themselves. (laughs) Um, Accurate. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Um, so I suppose I would use, I used to in the old days when we were allowed out, I'd sort of get up, have some coffee, like do whatever. And then I'd go out, I might go to the gym or I'd go out and do stuff. Obviously now I don't have that. So I've had to find different ways of starting my day or making the days have some kind of rhythm to them. Otherwise they just all feel the same and a bit, um, long winded. So I found that getting up relatively early, um, and either working out, doing like an online workout, um, and then maybe going for a run or something like that starts me up, just gives me energy and sort of bounce for the rest of the day. And the rest of the day sort of happens with a bit more consistency. The rest of the day happens with a bit more rhythm, I guess, is the word I put yeah. to it. It just happens quicker. Um, or I, so I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment, your mental health workout. Wow. So I'll get up and do a chapter or go over a chapter or do something that I need to be doing about it, which gets my creative juices flowing. And then I might just go into my clinical work and then maybe come to maybe do a workout at the end of the day. But I do, for me, working out is important and I need to move my body. Um, so I do make sure that I do that each day. I do have a day off a week, but I do make sure that I move, um, each day. So yes, that's how I kind of get my juices flowing first thing in the morning. Lovely. Um, yeah. Serena, did you did you put Zoe's healthy habit to the test? I did. So I I'm not good at like exercise exercise first thing in the morning because I'm like a bit of a sloth when I wake up. But I like to take the dog out first thing. So like gentle exercise, going for a walk or something. Yeah. Um, and creative. I've just been thinking about like not going straight to my emails. Like maybe doing something that's work related, but kind of using my imagination and, and figuring things out. I think that I'm probably more creative in the morning before I've had time for like all the worries and troubles and to-do lists of the day to come flooding in. So I really like that. I like the idea of using that time to, yeah, to, what's the word? Yeah. Condense all your creativity. How about you, mm, Sarah? Yeah. Um, I did something nice this morning in in light of this and I think you're right Serena I think yeah as soon as I open my emails I'm sort of gone for the day and then hours pass um but I've been really struggling to get up early at the moment but my early has been switched to sort of 8am ish and this morning I woke up and I ha- I've had like lots of lovely flowers in the house from people sending me flowers which is so nice and they've all sort of like been drying out and dying a little bit and this morning I spent probably about 40 minutes like gathering the nice ones and rearranging them and I really took my time over it and I absolutely loved it it was such a nice way to start the day that's lovely so that was, I mean I think it was quite creative I felt creative doing yeah. it yeah <laughs> oh um, I love that I love if anybody that. wants to send me some flowers I will pop my address <laughs> in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a really nice thing to to do to get creative first thing if it is exercising great if it's something that just like uses your mind in a different way then that's really beautiful as well I suppose also in terms of being in quarantine it's like a bit of a bookend to your day because otherwise when you're working and sleeping and living in the same building it's very difficult to have an end a beginning and an end point to your working day so maybe that's a nice way to to look at it yeah 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 definitely Zoe thank you so so much for coming on 
Thank you for having me. I've still got like a million questions for you. So I, I think know. we're going to have to persuade you to come back on again in the future. <laughs> and we need to cook for you. Well, Serena needs to cook for you. <laughs> um, thank you so, so much. That has been so fascinating. And yeah, as I said, I've got a million more questions. So please, can we stay in touch and quiz you and soak up all your wisdom? Absolutely. I'm not going anywhere. Thanks, Zoe. Thank you so much. Bye, Zoe. Bye. Thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us on Kitchen Club, our remote recording. Very, very sad that we couldn't be with Zoe in person to cook her the delicious fritters that Serena made. Um, But it was so wonderful speaking to her. She is so fascinating. I know we say this every time, but I really, really could talk to her for hours. Yeah. I feel like we just touched on topics that are so much bigger than we had time to, to delve into. And yeah, I just, I want to quiz her. I want to sit her down and quiz her because there was so much juicy knowledge in there and I want to learn more. Yeah, me too. Zoe posts so many informative videos on her Instagram at Your Mental Health Workout. So do check her out there to dive into some. My particular favourite, which I didn't get to ask her about, was about sibling rivalry, which is very interesting if you're keen to listen. We'll have to get her back on for a whole episode on sibling rivalry. (laughs) Because I feel like that's a big one for a lot of people. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. If you want the recipe for today's episode, you can follow us on instagram at kitchen club podcast and we'll post it on there and we'll also leave all of zoe's details in the show notes below thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week see you next week thank you bye imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.